And so here, here's what I've told you. We're going to review some things, and then we're going to get after it with a new topic and a new step and a new story in Scripture of a woman who has been traumatized. Uh, but what I've been telling you that I want you to keep hearing, and so I know that I'm saying the same things, but I'm saying them on purpose because repetition is good for memory. And so if you've heard them before, you can maybe finish them out loud with me. I told you a few weeks ago, we're not simply trying to tell you something. We're trying to take you somewhere. And that's how recovery works. And so it's not just information for information's sake. Uh, you're trying to learn something and then apply it. And if you don't apply it, then you missed it. And so these concepts are not something that you embrace and then move along. They're also stuff that you keep coming back to. When it comes to healing, when it comes to maturity, you don't come to this place of I've arrived. And as soon as you think you've arrived, if you have a recovery background, you know this to be true, that's when you typically fall. And so don't think, well, I'm gonna learn this information, I'm gonna wipe my hands of it, I'm gonna work through it, and then everything's gonna be better because that's not how it works. It's a continual process. And we've defined trauma. And so if you don't have the definition yet, write it down. In fact, we've seen more people taking notes and even interacting online than we've ever seen in the history of the church. So I'm gonna define trauma again. Trauma defined by myself as a wound that causes you to realize that your world cannot be trusted. And so for that reason, it's subjective, it's not objective. It's this trauma might be a big deal to you and someone else walked through the same thing and for them it wasn't really that big of a deal and that's just kind of the way it works when it comes to trauma. But on some level, it's all of us. And what I've told you is this, that pain is not the primary problem, which is why we're going through recovery models, that that thing happened to you, that thing wasn't your fault. Pain is not the primary problem. The response to the pain, the response to the trauma is the bigger problem, and round and round and round, the cycle of dysfunction goes on in your life, and maybe even generationally in your parents' life and your grandparents' life, and someone has to get out of that cycle to see God move in a way where there's health, there's spiritual maturity, and there's fruit in your life of being a Christian. And so although that pain is damaging in your life, it no longer is the primary problem. What I know, and what you already know if you're honest with yourself, is that the primary problem is the response to the pain, and that's on you. That's what we've been saying. That's on you. That's your sin. That's what has to be brought to the cross. And what I've told you as well is this. If you don't deal with your past, what have I said? Do you remember? Your past will deal with you. Rick Warren says that pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. And so what I've found to be true in my own life is depending on what season I'm on, if I haven't dealt with stuff and brought it to the cross continually and I'm just kind of hiding it in the backdrop of my mind or in the backdrop of life, what I've found to be true, and recently this really came to light in my own life, is that those things that I thought were gone were really just lying dormant and in the right situation with the right concoction of things taking place in my life, they've blown up again. And that's also the way it works. And so we're working through this process of understanding trauma, but more importantly, how to move forward from it. And then those things that the pain is not the primary problem, but the response to the pain is the primary problem, those responses we're trying to change so that we can be people purchased by the blood of Jesus that are going out and making a difference in our communities and in our world. And so here we are, we've been looking at different case studies, and today we, we come upon a case study, although I've told you the last ones were the most significant in all of the Gospels, I found this one, and you all know the story, and as I looked into it, I thought, you know what, I, I have to backtrack, I think this woman's trauma is the worst, and I'll explain why, in all of the Gospels. And so turn your Bibles to John chapter 8, the very famous Gospel account of the woman caught in adultery. 
There's a few things in here that I think make this story incredibly unique. We're going to read it together. Verse 1 says this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And so the backstory is that people are trying to set up Jesus. Religious leaders are trying to set up Jesus. He's saying all sorts of things to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's calling them things like the brood of vipers. He's calling them adulterers. He is saying that their sin is worse than everyone else's. In verse 2, he says, early in the morning he came to the temple. And they're going to try to set him up. All the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Let's just pause there. When the Bible says that she was caught in adultery, that doesn't mean that a few months ago they found out that she was doing something she shouldn't have been doing. Literally, the way the story unfolds, they find her in the act. That's why, to me, it's more traumatic than anything else. I can't even imagine what this would have felt like. They caught her in the act, in the bed. You can let your, you know, don't let your mind wander too much. But they find her doing this, and they literally pull her from that environment right to religious leaders and right to Jesus. And placing her in the midst, verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught, underline it, caught in the act of adultery. And now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? So, so here's the trap. Uh, Jesus had been saying very harsh things to the Pharisees. He called them adulterers in his, in his own ministry. He said, if you've even looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He's laying all of these things out. And then the trap is this. Is Jesus going to show justice to this woman or is he going to go show mercy? Because if he's a follower of the law, he said he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. If he's a follower of the law, then he needs to stone her. But the Bible also calls him a friend to sinners, a friend to tax collectors. And so if he stones her, then the trap on the flip side is that he's no longer a friend to sinners. And so they think they finally got him where they need him, where he can't win. And that's the trap. But looking deeper into the story, here's where I think you can really get some insight. I was listening to uh, John MacArthur talk about the backstory from a sermon from 1980, the same year I was born. And in 1980, MacArthur said this. He said, where is the man? Where's the man in the narrative of this story? Because Leviticus 20 says this, that both parties, when they're caught in adultery, should be put to death. In fact, in some ways, it was worse for the man. In Leviticus 20, there was this supplemental reading that they followed under the law called the Mishnah. And it says that a man caught in adultery should be put uh, in manure to his knees. I don't know why, but that's what they would do and be strangled with two towels that don't leave marks to represent that his death was orchestrated by God himself. I mean, you talk about shameful, you talk about humiliating, but in this story, with this specific trap, the Pharisees and the scribes could have cared less what he did because that's not the point. It's just to set up Jesus. And so this woman is just a pawn in their game. She's a pawn on the chessboard. And the story goes out like, unfolds like this, verse six. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This is the famous line. Most of us, if we're not Christians, still know this story. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? There's this awkward pause in the narrative. Has no one condemned you? And then verse 11, she said, 
No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Write this, underline it down in your Bibles. He says, go and from now on sin no more. Here's the big moment. She's coming to Jesus. She's terrified for her life. Not only is it the end of her life, but she's ending her life in such a dramatic fashion that she feels absolute shame because of everything that's just been taken from her. And then one by one, when Jesus sets these guys up, he's writing in the sand. We don't know what he's writing, just so you know. People theorize. We don't know. Maybe he was just doodling. No one really knows. But he kind of has this moment with them where he looks at them, he writes in the sand, he looks at them, he writes in the sand, and he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And with the older ones going first, they just start dropping the stones as they're feeling the weight of their own sin and the conviction of their own life. And they know that they cannot stone her because they have stuff that they have to deal with themselves. And now here's what's so interesting. When you feel conviction, the appropriate biblical response is to go to Jesus with it. But these guys in their pride turn and they walk away from Christ, this woman who is scared for her life, and if it's me, and I'm not having a heart change, the first thing I'm gonna do when the stones drop is I'm gonna take off as fast as I can in the opposite direction to self-preserve. But this woman has this moment with Jesus where she just stands there, and he says, who's throwing the stones? She says, everyone's dropped them, and he says, well, if they're not gonna judge you, then I'm not gonna judge you, but then he says this, he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Of all the characters in the New Testament, because of the complexity of her situation and the trauma of the immediate, of all of the characters in the New Testament, I don't think that there would be anybody in the narrative of the New Testament that would have any more shame than this woman and this storyline and this particular situation. Something I told the first service that I think is important to bring to light as we're talking about trauma is this that shame and trauma are interconnected. In fact, if you're dealing with someone who's been through a significant trauma in their life, specifically things like sexual abuse, what you will find is within that there's a shame cycle, and as a counselor, if you don't work through that shame cycle, then not much is really gonna change in their life. They always go hand in hand. They're best friends and their worst enemies. If you don't work through the shame, you will never move past the trauma. And Jesus' response is profound. We need to catch note of it. Jesus responds in a way where he engages her, and so there's something that really cool that happens in the story that actually has been researched now thousands of years later by people who are, are working with other people who've been through trauma, and they found that what Jesus does in this situation is something that counselors need to do now to help people work through their trauma and their shame. What he does is he, display, he places on her an extreme amount of kindness in the narrative of this story. There's this book that I told you I want you to read if you've been through some trauma, specifically regarding the past sexual abuse. It's called Redeeming Heartache, and it's by Dan Allender. And he has this research chapter just called Kindness, where it has been proven that a key tool to disrupt the shame cycle is kindness displayed in someone's life. And here's why that's actually interesting, because when someone's been through trauma in their past, specifically childhood, If they've been a victim of sexual trauma, they tend to be ambivalent towards kindness at first because 91% of cases from abusers, the abusers knew the victim. And so what they've done uh, to groom their victims is they've actually shown a false kindness to be able to manipulate them into being a trustworthy person in their life. And so that trauma victim is already kind of pushing kindness away from their life. They're having barriers and walls around their heart because they've learned that people can't be trusted. 
And so that obviously has to be worked through. And so she's probably dealing with the same thing. But despite that reality, true pure kindness, research has shown, is the avenue that God takes to heal the broken heart. True, genuine kindness to transform cruelty, genuine kindness to transform fear, genuine kindness to transform hardness, genuine kindness to transform despair. In fact, write this down. This is research-driven. Without kindness, a person will be bound to the repetition of past trauma in the present. That's what the research shows. That one of the key therapeutic tools to overcoming trauma, specifically from childhood, is that someone has to engage the process with genuine kindness defined by three matrix. That it deeply touches the heart, that it's unexpected, and that it's undeserved. And Jesus, knowing everything before he says, go and sin no more, puts all three characteristics on display. And so the application, I just can't move past it until we address it. The application is you don't have to be a therapist, you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be you know, a religious leader of the day to have this simple act of kindness when you're working with people that are broken. And when you do that, look at me, when you do that, things change. When you do that, things change. And so Jesus puts on display what it looks like, but then he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. We don't know what happened exactly in this situation, but here's what we can say pretty confidently, that this was not the first time in her life where things have been rough. That although this thing was her fault, and she might have been manipulated, like uh, MacArthur talks about when he preached on this topic, he said, you know, it's probably most likely that this guy who she was with, was actually set up to be with her by the Pharisees and the scribes, and that's why he was retracted from the storyline. But but nonetheless, this is still on her. She still had a choice to make. But before she had that choice to make, there's probably enough evidence to suggest that her story is a trauma story, that her childhood was less than perfect, that at some point in her life she was more than likely victimized, if nothing else, just by being a woman 2,000 years ago. And what we keep saying, and I want to say it again, is pain is not the primary problem. Her pain from whatever it was, we don't know the details. Her pain from her childhood, although it's horrible, although maybe, you know, we don't know exactly what even happened, it's not the primary problem. Her response to the pain is what keeps creating this cycle of dysfunction in her life. And Jesus says, that's on you. That's where you need recovery. And so what he says specifically, which is why we're preaching this story today, is he says, go and sin no more. It's time to make some changes in your life because if nothing changes, then nothing will change. And although it's not fair what's happened to you, although it's not fair that at some point you've been victimized, it is the will of God that you don't just, like a few weeks ago we did this altar call, right? It's although it's the will of God that you come to Christ, that's just the starting point. The surrender that Jesus is in control, the surrender is that he's the savior of the universe, the surrender that my sins only can be forgiven for him, by him, is just the starting point of your faith, it's not the finish line. This whole thing is a marathon, and there has to be this fork in the road where you don't just say yes to serving Christ and loving him and obeying him, but you actually say, I am going to make tangible change through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's where we land Today, that's where we land on this idea of go and sin no more because we don't know the continued narrative. That's all we know from her. 
We, we don't know what those tangible steps look like, which is why we're going to break them down for the next several minutes. But if you're in this recovery model, if you're going to celebrate recovery on Friday nights, here's the step that we land on today. I want you to write it down. I want you to say it with me. This is the change decision that I'm going to voluntarily submit to every change, underline that, every change God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove any of my character defects. Another way of saying that is this, humbly ask him to remove this sin that has been a repeated cycle generationally in my life. Is that not where the rubber meets the road? That you're not just saying, yes, I believe Jesus. Yes, I surrender. But I am going to take these deepest, darkest crevices of my heart and I am going to start exposing them to him. I'm going to confess what they are and then I'm going to commit to a process of change because he has told me to go and sin no more. And so there's these three questions that we're going to walk in. They're right from the material. There's going to be a question and then a handful of points, but I want us to see them together. And we're going to start with the most basic is this. Where do character defects, you can insert this word, sin, where do character defects come from? And the literature tells us this, that it starts really with our chromosomes. So then uh, the biblical way of saying that is it starts with our sin nature. And that our sin nature actually affects every area of our life. That there's this cold, hard reality that when Adam and Eve took a bite of the fruit, everything changed on all sorts of organic levels. Emotionally, things changed. Spiritually, things definitely changed. That's the starting point. Physically, things changed. And even on a biological level, the fall has had great impact on how we even respond organically as humans in our wiring of our brains. The wiring of our brains tell us, or the wiring of our bodies tell us with certainty that mom and dad gave us 23,000 chromosomes each to help out with develop, development, and not all of these things are good. When it comes to your parents, if you're sitting next to your parent in church, you can kind of look at them. You get the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just to be very specific, none of my kids probably have a great shot at being a mathlete. Right, because Ann and I don't provide those 23, 46,000 chromosomes, and that's just the way the cookie crumbled. Or, or in my life, the, these issues of these character defects on a chromosomal level uh, really play out in this way. My dad died of alcoholism. My grandpa died of alcoholism. My uncle's an alcoholic. My aunt's an alcoholic. My other uncle's an alcoholic. So what would be a wise decision knowing that I have these character defects that come from my sin nature, from my background? What would be a wise decision for me? A wise decision for me would be have a Diet Cherry Coke every time I go out to eat with you. And it's still manly because it's a Roy Rogers. It's not a Shirley Temple, right? So... I'm just getting to a point in life where, you know, when you first become a man, you're like, well, you know, everyone drinks. I'm old. I don't give a, I don't care less what anyone thinks if I wasn't a pastor, if I am a pastor, because I know on a chromosomal level, I would be a moron to touch alcohol. These character defects come from our sin nature, and the fall changed everything. But here's the good news, that predisposition does not mandate decision-making. Predisposition is like gasoline that's thrown on a fire, but we still have to choose to light the match. Or maybe a better way of saying it is gasoline thrown on wood, but we still have that choice. So these things happen at an organic level. The second thing is this, they come from our circumstances. 
These defects, this sin, it comes from the way that we've been trained to think, the way that we've lived. Much of how we relate and behave connects to what we have learned from others. Literature says that in an attempt to protect, to handle hurt, rejection, to cope with developed habits and patterns, we learn these things in life that have worked against us. In fact, here's a quote that I like. Many of your current sin patterns are actually self-defeating attempts to satisfy, satisfy unmet needs. And you go, well, I don't know if that's true. Okay, well, let's just take a look at your own life. How many stupid relationships have you been in to have someone tell you that you love, you're loved and that you matter only to leave you? That many of our current sin patterns are actually self-defeating attempts to satisfy unmet needs. And then they say this, it's our choices as well. And so it comes from our chromosomes, it comes from our background, but this is the lion's share of the discussion because this is the one thing that we can actually change. But these defects primarily come from the choices that you make, and even on a neurological level, this has proven to be true. On a neurological level, repeated sinful choices have a direct effect on the neural pathways and reward centers of the brain. And so when Jesus tells this woman, go and sin no more, what he is saying is make choices that are in line with God's will for your life because when you do things that don't honor God, on a neurological level, those pathways are being developed and they're getting ingrained into your behavioral patterns in a way that the older you get, the harder it becomes. That our choices determine, and this is the lion's share of scripture, that our choices matter, that our choices are either honoring to God or displeasing to God. Our choices are either bringing us closer to the cross are further in repelling us from the gospel. So the second question is now this. If change is the goal, if change is the ideal, if change is the mandate from Scripture, why does it take so long to get rid of these sinful behaviors, these character defects in our life? Number one, because we've had them a long time. It didn't happen yesterday. It could have even been a generational issue in your life. You know, specifically with relationships, it might be that third, fourth generations in, the family that you're a part of has never proven to show that they can have healthy, long-lasting, maintaining relationships in their life. It takes a long time to get rid of stuff because we've had those same things for a long time. And I know that this kind of rubs certain crowds wrong, and I just want to address it very quickly. I know, depending on your background, depending on your theology, you know, by his wounds, you're healed. And I know that things can happen immediately. You know, I, I never, I, I, I came to Christ, I never had the desire to drink again. Okay, look at me. I'm just telling you, working with a lot of people, like over a thousand for sure, a few thousand people over the last 20 years, and, and having a part of this ministry where there's a lot of people flowing through it, I can tell you that that's the exception and not the rule. And I know that that can happen, but look at me, it usually doesn't work that way. It usually does not work that way. And the reason we can't get rid of these character defects and sin in our life is because we've had them a long time and there is this absurdity to being human where we will choose what we know even if what we know brings pain in our lives, true? We will choose the familiar, we will choose the comfortable route even if it's bad because we like to be able to predict things and we get insecure and we get frustrated and we get anxious when we can't see something coming, which is a part of our trauma. And so we will choose those things that bring destruction if we can predict what those things will be. We tend to choose, I wrote this down on my phone, we tend to choose predictability over health. 
Dysfunction stinks, but for some reason it becomes comfortable and making changes becomes much more difficult. Here's a huge one in, in recovery circles. Write this one down. We confuse our defects with our identity, and that's why it takes so long for these things to change in our life. If you're a part of a recovery group on Friday nights to celebrate recovery, it's going to handle it differently than the secular world. The main difference is this. When you start exposing those things that are deep in your heart, I'll just use a case study. I don't know if there's a Bob in Celebrate Recovery in Aberdeen, but whatever. It doesn't matter. When you go before the group, you're going to say something because this is the theology of Celebrate Recovery. You're going to say something like this. Hi, I'm Bob, and I'm a believer who struggles with. You know, or, or, hi, I'm Jim, and I'm a believer who struggles with this over here. And so what you're doing is theological in nature. You're doing what's scriptural. You're saying, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He's now my identity. Those things that have hurt you do not have to define you. And if you don't understand that on a deeply theological level, then nothing's going to change. If those things become your identity, your prescribed identity, it becomes impossible to change. And so now I'm going to say something that's incredibly controversial. That's why as a pastor and as a person who studies scripture, I don't believe in a sexual identity. I believe in a sexual preference, no question. That's obvious. But I don't believe in a sexual identity. I don't believe in being, a, you know, my identity being prescribed as being a father or my identity is being prescribed as being a pastor or my identity pre- being prescribed uh, as being a husband. All of these things that can be good things. They're not my identity because the Bible tells me this. My identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. And the reason that I can't change is I don't know my identity. Are you tracking? Identity has one person that's attached to it and his name's Jesus. And the reason the wheels keep spinning in my life is because I don't understand who I am in Christ. Here's something super practical. Write this down. You miss it if you don't write down these next two. Why do I keep struggling with the same stuff and I can't move past the trauma? Write it down. Because every defect has a payoff. Every defect has a payoff. And and maybe you've never thought about it like this. Here's the common ones. Temporary relief from pain. Attention. Control. Relief from guilt. Endorphin release. Escape, every defect, every addictive pattern, every unhealthy relationship that you continue to go into in your life, because the pain's not the primary problem, the response to the pain is the primary problem, every repeated dysfunctional decision you make has a payoff in your life and it has to be identified. Every self-destructive behavior that's repeated has a payoff that has to be identified, and then more important than that is it may be terrible for us, but there is a perceived benefit, and it has to be addressed. Here's something that's just provably true in Scripture. Here's the last one before we go to the last question. Because Satan discourages our efforts to change. I mean, there's an adversary in the Bible. He comes to do three things, to steal, you know it, to kill, and what? destroy. The Bible talks about him in the book of John as not just a liar, but the father of lies, that there's no truth in him. And I'm not saying that everything's the devil's fault, because a lot of it, you know, he's not omnipresent, but there are a lot of demons, and there really is an enemy. And if you don't believe me, just turn on the news and watch what's happening in Ukraine, and it's undeniable that evil exists. 
It does not take a lot of critical thinking skills to come to the conclusion that, you know what, there is good and there is evil and that the spiritual realm is real. Satan discourages us at every level to change, and he's strategic in his approach. He has a job description to steal, kill, and destroy, and within that job description, he's strategic in the sense where he's probably not going to worry about you as long as you're going through this cycle. But when you step outside of that and you say generationally, you know what, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, you can just build into the equation this reality that things could get a lot more difficult in your life, and that's why it becomes so difficult to see the change that God designs for your life. Satan is the father of lies. There's no truth in him. The most practical of all is the third question. This is where we walk out of here. We look at this lady's isolated story, go and sin no more. We don't know all the steps in her own life but we apply her life to our life. And here's the third question. How do we cooperate with God's change process? Here's what Romans says. Romans 12 tells us this. Be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And change happens when we renew the way we think. We're a new creation in Christ. And so here are some practical steps that you can walk out of here with. Some of them are a bit counterintuitive and you might need to feed on them. But this is what the material tells us, so I'm going to lay them out for you. Number one is this. Focus on change one defect at a time. Or maybe a better way of saying it is focus on change one sin at a time. Focus on change one stronghold related to the sin in your life at a time. Proverbs 17 says this. The wise man aims at wise action, and a fool starts off in many directions. And I don't think it takes that long to identify what that thing is. And I would start with the biggest, right? What, what is the lion's share of your emotional energy going to that's sinful? What addictive pattern has developed in your life over a period of time because of wounds in your life from an earlier age? Whatever the reason, it doesn't really matter. What are those things that have developed that need to be crucified and give that the lion's share of your energy? Because if you don't, it's going to be too schizophrenic. Uh, the literature uh, talks about it through the lens of going outside on a hot summer day and there's bugs flying around every, everywhere needlessly and it's like they're accomplishing nothing. It's just a swarm of bugs that don't know where they're going. That's how it works in our process of sanctification. What are those things? We've got, you know, no one comes in here with one issue. All of us have sin because sin run rap, runs rapid in our lives but there are, needs to be some type of structure to it where it's categorized, where it's this issue and this issue and this issue and tackle them one problem at a time for the glory of God. It says this, focus on one victory one day at a time. Focus on victory one day at a time. And so the Bible tells us this, that Jesus is going to pray, or we're going to pray to Jesus and ask him this, this statement, give us today our daily bread, and it's not give us this month our daily bread, or give us this year our yearly bread, it's this day, and this is what recovery models all say, the same thing. It's this day I'm going to focus on this victory, and I'm not going to project six months into the future because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his promises are good for today, and my, my walk with him, my sanctification with him is this, that today I'm going to have victory. And tomorrow, the Bible says, is going to worry about tomorrow, but I'm going to stay in tune with Christ today. Spiritual maturity is not cooked in a microwave. It's, it's a slow boil. It's a slow boil. Lord, give me victory this day to stop uh, promising never to do it again and just simply ask for today's strength. Because tomorrow's going to worry about tomorrow. Here's another one. 
Focus on God's power. This one's huge. Focus on God's power, not your willpower. This is what sets us apart. This is why we're covering this stuff. If your best approach to change is to white-knuckle it and try harder, then empirical evidence in your life suggests that your way is broken by virtue of our attendance rising 25 to 30%. I think there'll be over 1,000 people in church today before we're done. As soon as we talk about past traumas and way to deal with recovery. And my point is this, the reason I'm saying that, the reason attendance is going up, the reason online viewership is at a peak is because people know and intuitively that their way is broken and they're looking for something else and the gospel is offering them something not just a little different than the world, it's offering them something that's inverted in everything they've known to be true for the entirety of their lives, that your willpower is not enough and that without Christ, you have no hope. If you want to focus on your power, then you can just stay at home and let me know five years from now, if you're alive, how that's working for you. Because what the Bible tells us is that broken cannot fix broken. The gospel is not, I can do all things. The gospel is, I can do all things through what? Through Christ who strengthens me. And if your broken philosophies would have been effective, they would have already worked and you would have never been here. Literature tells us this as well. Focus on the good and not the bad. And that that sounds kind of goofy, but I want to explain what that means. That doesn't mean that you don't address sin. It means the opposite. Some of the most destructive people that I've worked through through a therapeutic process as a pastor, as a counselor, as a Christian, have tried to overcome strongholds in their life by focusing on the stronghold over and over and over again. You know, maybe it's pornography or something like that, and it's, I don't want to look at it, I don't want to look at it, I don't want to look at it. And what happens when you do that? You're thinking about it constantly. You're giving this thing even more power in your life. I don't want this to be this way. I don't want this to be this way. What if there was a different way to handle it? What if the Bible was actually true, and instead of spending all of your emotional energy focusing on those things that are destructive in your life, what if you focused on the word of God and the 7,000 promises of the Bible to make a conscious decision to pick up the remote of your mind and the TV and the brain of your mind and change the channel? What if you turned the channel off and stopped focusing on those things that are destructive and focusing on the promises of God and falling in love with the Savior and allowing that to be the agent of change for your life where there's more of him and less of you and it's not this stronghold that gets so much of your emotional energy in your life. Focusing on your problem 98% of your day is not the biblical recipe for change. Emptying yourself And loving Jesus and allowing those things to melt off of you is how things change. That you have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And it starts with this surrender to the Savior. It starts with an active prayer life and affection for the Savior. Here's a huge one. In fact, I told the first service... In downtown, I, I told him this. If you forget everything I've said, and this is a manipulative tool for you to remember something, but if you forget everything I've said, remember this. Focus on doing good, not just feeling good, because your f- feelings and your emotions, I would say at least 75% of the time, have the capacity to betray you big time. Emotions are the tail. Doing is the, is the right? Emotion, I'm going to say that differently. It sounds weird enough. I said it in my mind first. <laughs> Emotions are the tail, not the dog. 
if you're going in a different in a direction that, that is godly and your emotions, the tail that wags, you know, the tail that's wagging, your emotions fall in line with that, then fine, your emotions are great. But I can't even tell you how many times people have said, I feel this and I feel that and I feel this. And I'm reading the Bible and I'm going, man, this is not working for you. I know this hasn't worked well for me in my own life. My emotions betray me constantly. And if I'm going to go off my emotions, I'm probably going to end in an end place that's destructive. If your emotions tell you something that's contrary to the word of God, then ignore your emotions and just do what God tells you to do. Focus on doing good, not just feeling good. The irony of all of it is that change doesn't feel good. If change felt good, everyone would be in perfect shape and everyone would eat broccoli every meal, right? Change doesn't even feel good. That's the irony. On a practical level, what I know about most unsuccessful people they have in common is that their emotions drive their life. They drive their life. The last ones are this. Focus on people who help not hinder you. You cannot hang out with that same crowd if you're trying to have victory over sin that you've been hanging out with. I mean, this is just like an eighth grade teacher, uh, a school counselor come to your class and say, you need new peer groups. I'm, I'm telling you, that's grounded in scripture. You cannot hang out with the same people once you get saved and once you commit to change. You can't date the same people. You can't hang out with the same people. You cannot do the same things that you've always done and expect different results. That's why this exists. It's not for you to hear a presentation on some part of scripture each week. This place primarily exists so that we have each other, we have worship, we have scripture where we can see tangible change because we're holding each other accountable and we're living a different life. You will not change by listening to a subpar message at New Life week after week after week. Eventually you'll be gone, I promise you. Do I really think it's subpar? No, but I'm being humble, right? It doesn't matter if you love this time. Man, well, I really connected on the stories. It's like everything related. So what? Six months. I know. I got a 16-year case study. You're gone. If you do not go deeper in your faith and have accountability with people who help and not hinder you, you are cooked. Last one. We're going to close out in prayer. I know this process is taking a little longer than normal, and I don't really care because I think it's that important. The last one is this. The last one is this. Focus on progress and not perfection. Sanctification, if you don't know, because it's just a Christianese word, is this reality of becoming more like Christ in your faith over a period of time. And, and here's the truth about sanctification. That it tends to be a two-step forward, one-step back trajectory. That if you saw it on a graph, it doesn't go straight up. You know, I got saved, and here's Christ, and boom, everything was better. It looks more like a nauseating roller coaster ride. It looks more like this, but it's going up continually. That you're doing this, you're serving Christ, you're making progress, boom, you fall a little, or maybe you fall a lot. You know, we all have different stories, and you just keep working your way to the, you're not working your way, you keep, you keep moving towards the Savior, affection for Christ over a prolonged period of time. And Philippians 1.6 says this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ, Christ returns. Or the day of Jesus Christ on a practical level is your last heartbeat where you meet him face to face. But it's a process. It's a decision followed by a process and it's progress, not perfection. And the trap is this. Here's the closer and I need everyone to just hone in on me, okay? 
The trap that you are a part of and that I'm a part of, it's a universal truth in our sin. It's a universal truth in our dysfunction that never gets better. The trap is this, that I need to get here to Christ, and it's the antithesis of the gospel. I need to get over here to Christ, and when I'm good enough, then he's going to love me enough. And the reality is this, that God's never going to love you more or less than where you're at right now, no matter what you're going through. He loves you because not of what you've done, but because of what his son did in your place. This is the difference maker. This is the change agent. This is why Christians change from the inside out. It's not you trying harder. It's you surrendering to the person who's already perfect. It's not about perfection. Christ is perfection. It's about progress and surrenderance to him. And you have to understand this or you're going to walk in a guilt cycle and a shame cycle where nothing changes. That the change agent is Jesus. And that I'm going to voluntarily submit to the changes he wants in my life. And I'm going to humbly ask him to remove my sin, my character defects. God doesn't love you when. God already loves you when you say, Christ, take my life. Because he loves you with the perfection of his son's blood covering your life. And you might have incredible victory five years from now, but in that victory, he doesn't love you one ounce more than he loves you right now. That the work has already been done. And when he saw that woman who'd just been pulled from a, from a bed of a guy that set her up, and he said, go and sin no more, he doesn't love her five years from then, one ounce more than he loved her right in that moment when he saved her. That's her story, that's your story, that's my story. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We don't want to stay in the same place. We don't want to be a church that's impotent. We don't want to be a church that's stagnant. We don't want to be a church where we just go through motions and say the right things. We want to be a people purchased. If there's anybody that has not surrendered their life to you, I would ask that in this moment they would surrender their heart to you, Jesus. And that from that place of surrender would come change. We pray these things in your precious and your holy name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your new life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.